Hello everyone, welcome to the newest episode of Keeping Up with Mrs. Kelly. Today, Mrs. Kelly makes a phone call halfway across the world to Mr. Erman, who is currently living in China. Mr. Erman explains how he and his family have started over, adapted to change, and have developed the ability to own their futures to reach their highest potential. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keeping Up with Mrs. Kelly. I am Mrs. Kelly and today I'm again sitting here by myself waiting to talk to somebody who is really, really far away. This is the guest that is the farthest away of anyone that we've spoken to. I'm very excited. I'm also nervous because the connection could be not the best, but we'll give it a try. And soon you will hear from my good friend, my old friend, Mr. Erman. Let's give him a call. Yeah, you Hello, Mr. Erman. Hello there. How are you? I am absolutely fine. I'm in quarantine in Beijing because I've been in Sweden now for, for a couple of weeks. So when you enter back into China, you have to sit in quarantine for two weeks. Good. Well, I was just googling how far away you actually are. Do you have any idea how many kilometers away you are from Stockholm right now? That would be uh, about ten thousand or something like that. I would say six thousand seven hundred four kilometers away from me right now. How does that make you feel? Probably sad. Just around the corner. Exactly. Yeah, so you were in Sweden just recently, but you've kind of been all over the globe. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today, because this whole season is about starting new things. And you have started and restarted and restarted your life again in different countries. So can you tell our listeners... Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about where you have lived and kind of the journey that you've taken with your entire family over the last decade? So we moved to Bangladesh and after that then to Nepal and then back to Sweden and then to 2019, we moved to China. And the reason we do that is because I'm, I'm married, my wife, she works for the foreign ministry. And this gives us the opportunity uh, to, to actually move to another country and, and seek the opportunities there. But the reason we do it, partly because it, it's part of her job, of course, naturally, though. But also, um, we kind of had the idea a long time for our kids to, to have the globe, the international world, as their, their arena to grow up in. So, and that was a little bit the idea, and that's also what happens. So our kids are very much uh, on an international level, if you wish. So when they look into the future, what they want to become, they, they don't only see Sweden, they see the whole, the whole globe mm. as an open market for them, or whatever they want to do. But also, I mean, being comfortable with having friends from all over the world, so their friends coming from anywhere. So they don't make any difference with colors or whatever they come from. The first question they have when they hear, they hear a person coming from a place is, okay, so what about that country? How's that? And what are the politics? Whatever not. But they're more curiosity than anything else. And, and, and that's amazing. Yeah, that's such a great gift that you've given your children. How old are they now? So the uh, oldest one is 18 in April. And the uh, youngest one is, will be 14 in 10 
And that also the reason why we moved to China now, this is, this would be the last time that both of us can be together. Next time, Andre would be, uh, my oldest one. He would be, he would graduate this year and he would go on to university or whatever he's doing and then move away from home. So, um, this is the last opportunity we had to, to live together. And the thing is that when you live abroad, you tighten up the family. It's a really quite tight family. Yeah, that's such a cool thing that you can bring your family on these little adventures and and not make this about like taking a holiday together. It's about uprooting your lives and starting from nothing with just your family. And I guess you really have to depend on each other a lot more than you would if you stayed here in Sweden. Well, we do, and we do, and, and also have to, I mean, I have to recognize that and support my wife in her writing career, and she, she does the same for me, even though I have to do a lot of sacrifices. I mean, it's been like when I'm back in Sweden, I'm working at my network and becoming a principal, and I've even had done whatever happened. But then when we moved to Bangladesh, it's like you're cutting all the clothes and all the contacts and all the networks, and then mm. you come back again in 14, and you have to build it up again. And and then you have to, you know, read it again and try to keep contact with colleagues and friends and so forth. But uh, it's always, you know, you don't have a flow of a career move as you would have if you lived in one country all the time or a longer time. So that's a little bit of a sacrifice. But, but on the other hand, when you move abroad, you also are gifted to see opportunities and you learn so much being abroad. So um, it's, it's not a shame in the sense I don't feel sorry for myself. I actually see it as an opportunity to I love that outlook that you have. Have you been able to help your children adopt that outlook of this is not a punishment to leave all of our friends and, and our comfort zone? It's actually a gift. How have you helped instill that in them so they see it as a positive? So this last move was actually for them. It was them. They who asked to do this. It was not for me. Wow. Uh, for me, it was definitely the wrong time. And it was for, for my wife, it's not a career step in any direction. It's actually our kids who wanted this. So we're doing this for them. And uh, among other things. Um, but so we don't have to prepare them so much with these things. But uh, uh, the first time when we moved to Bangladesh, of course, then then you had to put a lot of effort in to support at least the oldest one. He was only five years uh, and he didn't speak any English. And he started up at the American International School in Dhaka. And no one there spoke from Swedish whatsoever. Mm. So, uh, so it was a tough start for him. And he, but he he developed this fighting spirit. So he, because he changed before he was like a kid who, who wanted to save someone and one, two friends around him. But uh, over the years, he struggled to get into the American school, learn the language, learn the new cultural codes and everything, get playdates from that time. And that's has continued. So now he's very, you know, open and sensitive and a little bit of leadership that's developed into him. So, uh, but it was a lot of support. I know that a lot of our students don't go through the same magnitude of a of a shift, a life life shift as your children, but a lot of them do struggle with something that is foreign to them and uncomfortable for them, like starting in a new class or even when they begin at IES, it's really uncomfortable. What do you think that your kids would be able to say to our students that are having trouble with 
a new adjustment? What is some advice that you think that they would be able to pass on? Take it as it comes. Uh, don't, don't look upon it negatively. It would be great things if you, if you give it a try, if, you, if that is your effort. Uh, something like that. If you see uh, a bunch of people standing together and you want to be part of that discussion, step in. Step in and say hi. <laughs> Don't be afraid. I mean, things like that, maybe they would say. Taking it's those kind of small steps. When they, leave, when they live in an international school, they rotate the students quite often, especially in, in a country like Bangladesh. You don't stay there for more than three, four years. Mm-hmm. So all family rotates out to me all the time. So mm-hmm. all of those kids in those international schools, they're quite hot, used to um, new kids coming in and, you know, embracing them to do whatever they're doing and so forth. And right now you are in China and China has been all over the news for the past nine months how has it been to be in like the epicenter of COVID-19 because you were there you had just moved there a few months earlier and then COVID hit China really really hard how was that for you and your family it didn't hit harder than Beijing, so it hit here. It hit down in Hubei, uh, in Wuhan. Hubei is the province, Wuhan is the capital. And, and that's 150 cases, 1,000 cases, I wait a bit. So it put everything to a stop. Even the school closed down, the shops mm-hmm. closed, closed down. But we were never in the lockdown in Beijing. You could walk out, but the, the town was more than dead. And they're very decisive here in China. Also. So you have to wear masks and then you have this health app that developed. Uh, so you have to show that everywhere and, and so forth. But it was actually nothing happened. So in, in February, walking the streets here was like a ghost house. It was quite scary. But then also, but the hardest thing I think it was, because there was always food. So we know. We were not in any crisis or anything like that. There was always food to buy in the grocery stores. And was, the hardest thing, I think, was for the kids because school clothes, they had homeschooling and uh, they didn't have a social surrounding for for the kids to be with. And there were others as well. So what we did is actually I did. I started a school again. <laughs> Another uh, one. Swedish kids. Another one, yes. Well, no, that's a story in itself also. But I started a school for them though. So they had the e-learning, but they came into the school. I helped them, I taught with them and coached them if you wish to in their subjects, whatever they do. And then we had breaks, we had lunch and all those things. They had a social environment to be in so they could actually go and have, have some to play on the break, you know, stuff like that, to, just to be together. And the parents could get a break to actually work. Um, and that was really, really good. So we did that for the whole thing. That is a huge challenge that I guess you had not been prepared for. What were some of the most difficult things with, like, launching that and keeping it running when you hadn't had adequate time to prepare and you you had just moved to the country, basically? Right. Yeah, I know, I know. Now, the thing is, but again, you know, the passion in my life is two things. One of these, it's education, schooling, and leadership. And I live for that. And, you know, it wasn't that hard, really. It was actually fun. It was, it was something that fulfilled my day very much. And I enjoyed very much doing it. And the kids appreciated it very much. So it wasn't, it wasn't that hard to do, really. But it was enormously important. So put it that way. It's, not, it's nothing like what I did, you know, before in my, in my real professional life. You know, starting up school, <laughs> where I did, and same mm-hmm. as you, and then my school was in Philadelphia. This was a big challenge. The, the job I had before, that was a huge challenge. For, uh, but it is important because in the same, I think it is the same notion I have to see the kid in the opportunity and not let go. I mean, to have that motivation of that. I mean, that's what drives me. I think if I, the thing is that if you, if you 
can I take you on a little journey just to explain what I'm talking about? It gets a little bit complicated. I think it's easy, but so my own schooling, why I became a teacher in the first place, that's that's what I'm struggling at now, goes back to my own schooling, the elementary school. I was not top of the class unless you turn the page upside down. <laughs> and I would be on the top of school. <laughs> but, but, and the thing with that was that um, I remember very clearly in grade four, um, I was trying, I wanted my teacher to be very proud of me, so I, I started like hell for a test, and I did the test, and the test was quite good, and then I thought that the teacher would be surprised and says, I know you could, I mean, look at this, what you could do, whatever, and I would be very motivated and so forth. But when I got the test back from the teacher, it was blank, it was not marked, there was no comments, nothing on it, so I closed the teacher. And she said that, well, that makes no sense marking in your paper because you never get it right anyway. Oh my and that's God. Actually what she said. And I don't know if that was sort of her way of motivating some group in school. But what happened to me was that, and this has been you know, very characteristic for me in my school, you know, but during my school times, I learned to live just below the radar. Don't mm-hmm. have any expectations put on you, you'd be free. Mm-hmm. Right? That works very well. In, in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, it's all the same. Just happened again and again and again. Until high school, then 10 weeks before graduation, then they actually set that in harmony, had Christmas office, they convinced me that I should leave. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and I stopped working. And then when you start coming into real life and working, right, you can't try on the way there again. So I, you know, found that I was actually quite good at what I did. And later on in life, I went back to school and we did my you know, high school and took my masters and one back. And I realized that I had learned this passion for what schools should be mm. should not be and they should I mean, and, and that comes into play because if I see any child or any, anyone actually who don't have the expectation protocol that kind of engages with me and I'm dead scared that any kid would fall out into what I was uh, at that time because that would be long lasting and it would be devastating for the child for this child mm. and it could go either way but you trust. so I'm so I'm so eager to get I mean, to, to even if you have a class of 13, 20% of the class, if you can get those kids to, to, to perform, to actually have expectations on them, and they meet up with the expectation, and even, you know, they're on their own potentials or whatever thought they could, that's when you build self-confidence, and that's why. So this is what I want to achieve. This mm-hmm. is what drives me every single day. So mm-hmm. this is good. When I saw this in and they're doing it. I could just see, I mean, these kids are all diplomatic kids, fantastic, but they, they're at home, they're very dependent on their, their parents, the parents work, be in the office, they never have any, you know, their friends are not there, you have to arrange playing, become such a big operation every time you have to do something. So, for me, it's just, you know, we have to do this. <laughs> we can't do it like this, this is not working. The schools are too important. Can't just close school down. Mm. I think that everything is just built out of academics, it's about everything else as well. Mm-hmm. And it would hurt the academics if this wasn't like So that's why we did it. So it was actually, it was more than a pressure, it was something I felt that I, and not only for my kids, but also for the other ones. Oh, but I, I love this story and I love how everything comes back to kind of your, your belief in yourself and your expectations on yourself and, and also your own perspective on things that everything that you've talked about today it's not about being born with a certain skill set it's not about like what cards you're dealt as a human being it's all about understanding that you have the power to to affect your life in either a positive or a negative way if they read 
like an article or something, if they see something, I and mean, most of the kids in Philadelphia, you, know, you probably have that in that as well, they're going to become professional football players. But they see, they see that on TV. They don't have the, the pictures of alternatives out there. So if you present them to them, you'll say, I can do this. Can I do this? Or whatever it might be. You don't have to take the popular ones like a firefighter or, or pilot. You can have, I don't know, you know I mean, what, what is sales? I mean, no, I mean actually selling is it's a relationship job. You're helping people solve problems by, mm. by whatever you're offering, whatever else. So, and if they can see that, if you just see that, oh, this is possible, mm-hmm. then you can tell them that, okay, so what would you have to do to get there? And how can I support you? So, I mean, and so they know that they can own their, you know, their vision and their beliefs in the future and so forth. And that would bring the academics and everything else with it. But if you leave them at home, they're not talking with each other, then these things doesn't come up. It makes, it makes it so, so much more difficult mm-hmm. uh, for them to, you know, visualize the future for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard for high school students to do that, but imagine young men and middle school students the same, right? So, and, but if you, if you have that and you have content different alternatives, you can, I can do this and I can do this and obviously anything is possible, but you just have to fight for it. You have to work for it. And then the expectation comes in and says, if you do this and I expect you to do this, this is actually possible, so to speak. Yeah. But if it's a belief in it and being called, sorry, I'm, I'm just, these are, you know, now you're coming down to my, Mm, but I love these are the things that I love to talk about because it's my it's my core belief as well that it it has nothing to do with like what skills you're born with or what features you have inherited from your parents it's about your belief that you can it's about grit it's about saying I am going to do this and then you can and I love that you have not only applied that to your life and your kids' lives, but also that you're spreading that vision on to the students that you teach, whether they're in Sweden or China. Yeah, and I actually have NGOs with slum schools in, in Dhaka, but also outside Dhaka. And these are the kids who normally live on the streets. But these NGOs, these NGOs, they, they set up a school for them and coming up to school. And they, their, their dreams, if you, you start talking to these kids, they have big dreams. They're colorful dreams. They just don't know how to get there. And in, in societies like that, it's a little bit more difficult than it is in societies like Sweden. Because they value education so, so very much when they want to get it. Because they didn't expect it mm-hmm. in the first place. So, but, but it's kind of interesting though that they have it. They just don't know how to get it. And, and I understand that in Bangladesh, sometimes it's very difficult for them to, to break the barrier to take the extra steps. So to but it's very motivating for them. You see that how they grow. And sometimes I feel like, and even in China, but in Singapore, Singapore's very parent or graduate driven conditions, sometimes it's kids, if they could have, if they could own their vision, you know, they could have that glow in their pride, that, that would do so much. And I'm that scared that my kids will, will lose that and don't have that. But I love that. I love owning your vision. That is so absolutely cool. Thank you, Mr. Oman. It has been so wonderful to catch up with you and to to hear about your amazing journey and just to get advice about how we can apply some of these super cool things to our own lives. Thank you. It was a really pleasure to, to be with you. Thank you and to hear from you again. Yes, let's keep in touch and stay safe over there. You too. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a comment, and share the show. And don't be afraid to try something new.